meditation is quite safe. Mm. Tantra is not so safe. And that's one of the reasons why Tantra remains so hidden. Hello and welcome, fellow human. My name is Zachary Stockhill, and you are listening to Humans in Love, a podcast that looks at culture, relationships, and personal development from unconventional perspectives. Join me as I dig into the question of how people like you and I might get more out of life and love. Thanks for being here. When you hear the word Tantra, what comes to mind? What do you think of? What, uh, what are the mental images that, that come up for you? If you're anything like a lot of people, the associations might not be entirely positive, owing, I would say, to a lot of the people involved in the neo-tantra scene, but certainly not exclusively neo-tantra. To my mind, tantra is one of the world's great spiritual traditions, and also possibly the most poorly represented. I mean, if, if you Google Tantra, and by the way, I'm by no means an authority on Tantra. I'm speaking primarily as a student. But if you Google Tantra, you find a whole lot of crap in my mind. There's a whole lot of charlatans. There are many people indulging in what I call performative spirituality, people pretending they're having these mystical experiences and trying to sell themselves as gurus. There's a lot of snake oil. Uh, it's, it's not all pretty. Certainly, I'm, I'm generalizing here, but there's a lot of it. Uh, I think if you Google it, you'll find that way. And so a lot of people still uh, snicker and laugh and have kind of weird negative impressions of what Tantra is. I remember Sting, uh, of Sting in the Police fame, catching a whole lot of flack for admitting that he was interested in Tantra back in, in the 90s. People just have a lot of negative impressions of Tantra, and, and to a large extent I can understand why. But to my mind, the core teachings, the core principles, the core practices of Tantra are incredibly valuable and possibly more relevant than ever and more useful than ever as I speak to you today in 2018, I would say particularly for anyone interested in monogamy, anyone interested in maintaining a long-term exclusive relationship, tantric principles can be extremely, extremely valuable. I found that in my own life, and I've read many, many accounts of people with similar experiences. So what is tantra? This is a question that I don't feel at this point entirely qualified to answer, so I wanted to have someone on the podcast who could. My guest today is Uriel Yariv. Uriel is an Israeli psychologist, tantra teacher, and all-around interesting human being. He is currently one of my teachers here in Chiang Mai at the yoga-slash-tantra school he co-founded called Mahasiddha Yoga. And... Over the past six months, as I've really tried to dive deep into Tantra, deeper I should say, I've found his teachings to be funny and pithy and to the point and unpretentious. And I really value his take on all these things. And his teachings have brought enormous value to my life. 
And I thought that a wider audience could really benefit from spending some time with him as well. So not long ago, I went to Mahasiddhi Yoga here in Chiang Mai, Thailand, and we sat down for this conversation. Part one of which you'll hear today, part two you will hear next week. But if you have any interest whatsoever in Tantra, in maintaining a long-term relationship, particularly for the guys listening, if you have any interest in multiple male orgasms, I think you're really going to want to stick around and listen to my conversation with Uriel Yariv. Before we get started, I'll remind you that ratings and reviews are absolutely crucial for a podcast's success. So if you're enjoying Humans in Love and you'd like me to continue making new episodes, please go to Apple Podcasts or your podcast app of choice and leave a rating and a review. Without any further ado, I present to you part one of my conversation with Uriel Yariv. someone comes up to you and asks, what is Tantra? What comes to mind? What would you tell them? So the most um, important or the aspect which stands to the eye the most about Tantra is that it aims to bring the spiritual in the profane. It's aimed to uh, live a life which is having all the characteristics of an ordinary life with a job, with a relationship, with all the interactions with the world and still to aspire and to practically make that life divine and godly. And uh, this is the essence and the tantric practices, they are meant for that. If you want to stay in the world and yet live the same spiritual state that a monk lives, tantra is the best path for that. Not easy, but the best. And when you say divine, what does that word mean to you? Because, like, again, these, these words, a lot of people have different ideas about what they mean. What, what does that word mean to you? Yes, it is like the, um, if we want to take it from here, it is like to the peak of excellence. Yeah, there is, yeah, you love to watch television, but, but you love your favorite food more than that. And you love your friends more than you love your favorite food, but you love your kids more than you love your friends and you love your wife more than that and that love can if you if we continue that yeah most people stop with the wife or the (laughs) husband if we continue that we would attain this excellent love this perfect love that's divine love yeah and you care in the same way you care about your dog you care about that and then you really really care about your kids and if you take that care even higher that would be divine care. So we have this capacity of excellence inside of us. The same what we did with love and with care you can do with wisdom. You can do with intuition. Once you reach that level of perfection, there is something divine. Yeah? Some, some artworks, Michelangelo or something, they portray that. Mozart. They portray it's no longer just, just a piece of music or just, it's, it's divine. It has, it's breathtaking. Yeah? This this kind of upliftment, if we want to take the divine from, uh, yeah, from down upwards. So that would be a, a close definition. Yeah. And where does, I mean, again, even just using the word Tantra, there's many different schools and different ways that people um, practice things under the, the label of Tantra. But 
In your view, where does Tantra come from in terms of Hinduism, Buddhism, wherever? Like, what are the origins of this way of being in the world? Yeah, so archaeologically, the first uh, findings of Tantric practices, Tantric hymns, and so forth, is about 3,300 BC, so 5,300 years ago, very, very old, in uh, Pakistan, in the Hindus Valley. Harappa is the archaeological site. And uh, yes, the origin of, of Tantra was somehow growing side by side with Hinduism. Did, is Tantra the father of Hinduism or is in Hinduism the father of Tantra? Not clear and not so. Tantra didn't ins, ins, get, to, get to be an institute. Yeah, it stayed somehow very uh, free on, on the organization level. And uh, in times, with the growth of Buddhism, we have Tantric Buddhism, and Tantra and Buddhism just mixed. And if you look at Tantric Buddhism and at Hindu Tantrism, they're also mixed. They share the same deities, even. So uh, Tantra developed side by side with the traditions of India and later Tibet and the Far East in general. And uh, these are the origins. It had certain periods of blossoming, certain periods where it was uh, like now, mostly undercover. Yes, these are the origins. And what about the foundational texts or figures like Buddhism had uh, the Buddha, yes. Christianity had Christ. Um, are there any comparable figures in, in Tantra? Yes. Um, the old, old Tantrics, they stayed anonymous. The writers of the oldest Tantric texts, they are the 64 Tantras. We don't have all of them now. We have 30-something. Yeah. Some of them, some of the Tantras refer to other Tantras, which are simply, unfortunately, gone. So the old, old figures of Tantra, they didn't sign. It was a text, normally Shiva speaking to Shakti. Who wrote it? Who? We don't know. Where we find the first uh, Tantrics, at least the first that I know of, we have in the 7th century the great Padmashambhava, the founder of Tibetan uh, Buddhism and Tibetan Tantra. And then around the 9th to 12th century, we have the age of the Mahasiddhas and the age of Kashmirian Shaivism. In that time, the kings, both in India and in Tibet, were very, um, very approving of Tantra. And uh, there, the main figures of Tantra in that period are the greatest. Yeah, the greatest in Tibet is Padmashambhava, the second Buddha, as he's called. And the greatest in India is called Abhinava Gupta. Both his parents were spiritual masters and they conceived him in a state of Samadhi. They were both experiencing cosmic consciousness. They made a ritual to bring Shiva on earth, basically. And that's Abhinava Gupta. And uh, then Kshema Raja and Utpala Deva, they are the three main figures of the Tantrism of Kashmir. And uh, in the Tantric uh, Buddhism of, of uh, Tibet, we can also speak about, uh, or basically first started with the two Indians, Tilopa and Naropa, and then after that we have the great Marpa and Milarepa that turned in time into uh, right-hand Tantrics. The lineage started left-hand and they were practicing Tantra also sexually, and it moved gradually. Milarepa himself was abstinent. 
Yes, these are some. There are many, many, but there. What do you mean left hand, right hand? Could you talk about that a, a yes. bit more? So the left hand uh, tantra, which is called Vama Marga, they are uh, practicing to the obvious part is that they are practicing sexual practices. Yeah? And they are tantrics right hand, like many currents, you can see if they have hair or not. If the monks are shaved heads, they are not practicing sexually. And if they have long hair, mm -hmm. yeah, like the lineage of their four lineages in Tibet, some have long hair, some have short hair. Those with long hair, they're still practicing sexually. The hippies and the non-hippies. Exactly. So the uh, hippie monks, they're still practicing sexually outside. Like, and the inner, the ones of the right hand, in meditation, they are visualizing or they are entering certain astral worlds where they make love to divine dakinis and deities over there. Uh, but that's just the outer part. There's a much deeper inner perception. The left-hand tantra starts from the individual and discovers the universal. Yeah? So in an individual woman, in an individual man, in an individual lovemaking, you transfigure, you, you see beyond. That's not just a kiss. It's a divine kiss. It's not just an embrace. It's not just love. It's all love. It's not just her beauty. It's all beauty and so forth. And from the individual, you find the universal. That's the left-hand tantra. Whereas in the right-hand tantra, they go the other way. They don't touch so much this world. They look at the divine principles and then gradually see how they can descend it into their life. Eventually, you would have to do both. They're like two halves of a circle. But that's the essence of the left-hand and right-hand currents of Tantra. Okay. Yes. And, I mean, there's so much to cover, but when I was thinking about asking you about some of the, f the foundational ideas or principles or philosophies in Tantra, I think it's probably worthwhile now to talk a little bit about polarity and Shiva and Shakti. So, who the hell are Shiva and Shakti? Yes. Why, does it, why is it important? Why should we care? What is polarity? Yes. Yeah. Okay, that was a list of questions. <laughs> yes. So, uh, let's start with the last question. Polarity is, um, in Tantra, it says that every force in the universe can be extracted or essentialized into polarity. Without polarity, there is no energy in the universe. The reason why there is energy, the reason why things move, is because they have different poles, yeah? The gravity works, or the force of gravity works, because you have a certain object with a certain mass and another one, and they pull each other. That's a form of polarity. In electromagnetic fields, is even more clear, plus and minus. If your battery, the plus and minus, are zero, the battery doesn't work. So the entire universe is um, empowered through polarity. And does that mean that everything has a polar essence? Yes, everything has a polar essence except in Tantra, the divine absolute. There's one big zero. If, if you are in that zero, you are in perfect transcendence. And can we call that God? Yes, yes. You can say, you can say uh, the transcendental God. Yeah, because God in manifestation, because God is, in Tantra, is also everything and is also beyond. So God, which is everything, is also polar. And then there is God beyond, which is perfectly zero. It is perfectly transcendental. Mm -hmm. Yes. 
So um, this uh, game of polarity is the gateway to energy. And Tantra is very much the path of energy. If you want to distinct Tantra from other spiritual paths, other spiritual traditions and spiritual schools, it is the school in which energy is of the most or of the highest important. Yeah, there is no other school, also in Taoism, for example, but not to that degree. In Tantra, you work all the time with energy. You have a problem of confidence. Well, there is an energy of confidence. Attract that energy. The psychology and all that important. Have some, read some, understand some, good. But the energy of confidence, boom, you're done. Accumulate that energy. And how you play with energy? Through polarity. So now to come to Shiva and Shakti, the tantrics have essentialized the two poles. Yeah, so the poles can manifest, like we say, in a magnetic current, in an electric current, in sexual attraction, in gravity, in all sorts of forces we can find polarity. But uh, all the polarity can be essentialized into two main elements. And that is the masculine, which is in Tantra consciousness, and the feminine, which is in Tantra energy. And these two, they attract each other, and from their lovemaking game, it is written in the, in the ancient texts, from the love game of Shiva, the masculine consciousness, and Shakti, the feminine energy, the universe is continuously created. If they would stop to make love, it would disappear. Like in cartoons, the universe would instantaneously disappear. Yeah, also in the Jewish uh, tradition, there's a quote by our friend Leonard Cohen. He says, um, if Adam and Eve are not looking at each other, God doesn't sit on his throne. Yeah? So if there isn't a fundamental polarity, there, there's nothing. Yeah? That's the uh, idea on the metaphysical level in Tantra. Practically, yeah, should we take it to a practical degree? Sure. So, practically, once you learn to play the game of polarity correctly, your energy will harmonize. You will learn how to move big energies with very small, elegant gestures. Yes, yeah? so you will... Um, once you understand, for example, you have an emotion, yeah, or a desire. Normally, or emotions and desires, they are the feminine. They are energy. They are movement. They are change. Normally, when people have an emotion or a desire, they search to act on it in one way or another. Well, acting is still Shakti, yeah? And it's not necessarily what that emotion is needs or what that desire needs whereas if you understand tantra you take you have an emotion and instead of going further outside with the emotion you bring the other pole you bring consciousness and you immerse that emotion in consciousness in this neutrality and then that emotion will come to peace it will enter harmony 
Yeah, that's just one example how inside your inner world you take your inner feminine, the emotion or the desire, and you bring to it consciousness. If you become very conscious of your desire, it is not compulsive. You become conscious of your emotion, it's at peace. Could you give me a practical example of what that would look like in a situation in daily life? Uh, yeah. Um, yeah, I'll give you an example from my life. There was a very stressful situation um, a few weeks ago in which uh, I had, uh, let's say, uh, reasons to be very anxious. Yeah, some things which are very dear to me could have been taken away from me. And this uh, anxiety was difficult to fall asleep, it would wake up quite early, it was difficult, you know, just, you know, this feeling of anxiety. Now, uh, if, or at times when I would just follow anxiety unconsciously, it just creates a lot, a lot of mental agitation when anxiety is not polarized. But knowing the principles of Tantra, as soon as I had time, I sat and meditated, I think three or four times, for 20 minutes, half an hour, on the anxiety, using also a certain mantra and so forth. But I was just immersing it with consciousness, and more and more consciousness. And every time I would do that, it would settle. Yeah? It would be like the objective problem is still the same, but it's like it happened five years ago. It's already... Yeah, okay, I acknowledged it inside, in my inner world, even if it happened two days ago, it was like it happened five years ago. And I was at peace with that. And it wasn't just I imagined I'm at peace, I could fall asleep, I'd have the good night's sleep, I wouldn't wake up so early, and so forth. So, uh, just to give a practical example, yeah, the Shakti, or the energy of anxiety, when it had enough of Shiva, enough of consciousness, it settled. And when you talk about being very conscious of it. Do you mean, for example, focusing on the bodily sensations associated with your anxiety? Or? Yes. Yes. So um, emotions usually appear in a double way. There is the story of the emotion, the story of the anxiety, and the uh, physical sensation, the energetical vibration. If you don't have one of them, if you just have a physical sensation, you wouldn't call it an emotion. And also if you just have some thoughts and you don't feel anything in your body, that's also not an emotion. So only when these two appear and somehow feed each other, the more it vibrates, the more your mind gets agitated, the more your mind gets agitated, the more the body enters this uh, particular vibration of that emotion. So, uh, yes, to observe the emotion is to observe both. It's very different when you look at a thought instead of feeding it. So, okay, I would observe, these are the thoughts that I have concerning the anxiety. And when I have these thoughts, this is how it feels in the body. And then, by the practice of meditation, you will see that if you really meditate on it, the emotions have a vibrations which also exceeds the feeling of the body and it goes in your energetical structure. And then to dive into that. And it simply tends to, to go in its proper way. It's like uh, when food is not digested in the stomach and then you digest it and then you feel that, okay, it's done. Yeah, this is the, this is the way... Uh, that that I do, yeah. This is how to look at emotions. Mm -hmm. 
It's been, uh, what, 18 minutes now, and we haven't talked about sex yet, mm -hmm. which is yes. probably a record for a discussion. For a discussion about <laughs> because, Tantra. Because, I mean, it, it's... Oh, we mentioned it. With oh, the we left did. Hand, right yeah, hand. That's right. But yeah. just, just to mention. Yes. <laughs> well, I mean, I told you earlier, one of the reasons I wanted to have this conversation and, and share this conversation is it's my feeling that Tantra is the least understood and most poorly represented spiritual tradition in the world. If you Google Tantra, the amount of, to my mind, crap you find is, is kind of astounding, given how incredibly rich and valuable this tradition can be. Um, well, maybe I'll just I'll, I'll start with a very open-ended question. Even in your life, get as personal or not as you want. I mean, what... What are some of the main misconceptions out there about Tantra as you see them? Or what, what are the, the false ideas people have about this tradition? And perhaps what distinguishes what you're interested in and what you teach from some of the, say, the Neo-Tantra uh, movement? Mm -hmm. Take that question however you like. Okay. So I feel the deepest misconception about Tantra is that it brings a certain uh, subconscious, parting, um, reckless, irresponsible sexuality. Mm. Yeah, that is a kind of hippie, druggy form of sexuality. Everyone's and banging everyone. Exactly. And, right. It's like, okay, the parents are out for good. It's a new generation. The, the parents are never coming home again. Never coming home again. And we can express our, our lowest uh, desires and ring a bell and play some instants and read some poetry in the beginning and in the end and call it Tantra. Well, it's very, um, it's very far from the truth. The discipline that's needed for Tantric sexuality, especially for the guys, but as you will see also for the women in the long term, the discipline is immense. And the goal is... Um, so pleasure is not a, the goal of Tantra. It's an instrument. Yeah? So pleasure is not a sin. It's not a problem. But it's not a goal. Any kind of pleasure, not just sexual pleasure. Any kind of right. pleasure. Pleasure is a tool. Whereas in other traditions, pleasure... It's a very dangerous thing if you cannot handle it with care. In other traditions, they say, okay, just stay away from pleasure. Stay completely away from pleasure, like the Desert Fathers of, of early Christianity, or stay moderately away from pleasure, like most traditions. People who are seriously practicing, they kind of avoid it because it's very tempting. Tantra says pleasure is not good, not bad. It's an energy. You can ride that energy and use it as a spiritual tool. So the way or the, the easiest way to attain extreme pleasure is through sexuality. And that particular pleasure can expand your consciousness once it's controlled and it's, it's a wild horse. Pleasure generally and sexual pleasure particularly. Once it's controlled, pleasure can take you to very, very elevated states of consciousness. Pleasure in its nature is very relaxing. 
it creates a natural state if it's a very profound pleasure a natural state of expansion of consciousness when you feel a lot of pleasure it's like your borders are dissolving in a state of orgasm which is like the peak of pleasure orgasm the meaning of the word comes from breaking through your limits you're able to go beyond your ego through pleasure any extreme experience can take you beyond your ego but Pleasure is easier, also a great fear. There's, there's the yogis that live in cemeteries. Fine, if you have that courage, do that. There is the uh, intensity of extreme austerities. Fine, fast. But it's also possible to do it through pleasure. But you need to stay on top of the horse and not let the horse ride you. Yeah, This is the thing about uh, tantric uh, or the essence of tantric sexuality now the the wonderful thing about it is that it transforms your sexuality from something that is gross that might be conflictual that might be selfish shameful greedy violent unconscious something that maybe you're afraid of, it turns all these negative things associated to sexuality into something wonderful. So whenever you feel sexual, you feel peace in your heart. You feel love. You feel selfless. You feel care. It's, it's natural. When, uh, sexuality, like when you practice tantric sexuality for a while, your sexuality becomes pure. It's no longer a burden. It's a resource. Yeah, it's like people that had problems with food and all the time they would binge and starve and vomit and I don't know what. And then you harmonize your relationship with food and you only eat the most healthy food that your body needs and every time you eat you feel pleasure and you, you are drawn to all the food that's good for you. Well, practicing tantric sexuality already in the middle stages before you become a Buddha, yeah? but already in the first stages of tantra, your sexuality becomes healthy. You will only engage in sexual experiences which are good for you and good for the other person, good for you emotionally, spiritually, good for you today and good for you in a year. Yeah, it, it, it gives this um, wholeness, this beauty into, into sexuality. That's even in the early stages, even after a year or two of practicing Tantra, well, having a good uh, supportive yoga practice, this is what will happen. Yes. Yeah, you, you, you used a phrase that I really like, and I think it's, it's very succinct and, and apt. Sexuality as a resource. Yes. As an energetic resource, as a spiritual resource, yes. whatever. That idea is, I think, very foreign to a lot of people, but I would say particularly to a lot of men. You know, we've met, I, I've met men, I'm sure you have too, guys who have to masturbate, for example, every day or they say they're edgy and they, you know, or some, some guys who needed to, to sleep or whatever. And I'll never forget, I think, I think it was a David Data book I read when I was 18 or 19. And he spoke about, you know, and I'm, again, I've always had a very high sex drive. I've always really loved women. And I remember he wrote in the book, you know, when you see a beautiful woman on the street, breathe deeply through your whole body. You know, let, let that energy fill you. Let it be a good thing. Let it give you energy. Not in a... You want, you're wanting to have sex with everything that moves way, but just as in a, like, a, like you're walking in the park and you see beautiful trees, you see, yes. you know, whatever, getting energy from 
you know, the uh, eternal feminine. And that changed my life. You know, you walk around all day feeling energized because there's just such enormous beauty everywhere you go. It's this endless, abundant resource. Um, and you really feel it like when you're, when you're cut off from that resource, like we were at the retreat and uh, when we were separated for three days, you really feel it, you know? Um, but this idea is so, so powerful. And I'm jumping ahead a little bit, but we might as well talk about it now. I mentioned that I think Tantra is the most poorly represented spiritual tradition, uh, present company excluded, uh, in the world. I think the best kept secret in sex that boggles my mind how few men know it is that orgasm for men is different from ejaculation. They're two distinct things. Uh, men are capable of full body, multiple orgasms without ejaculation. Um, this blows so many men's minds, as you know better than better than just about anyone. If you could talk a little bit about sexual continence for men, why it's important, and what it actually looks like in practice, I think that would be helpful. Yes. Yes. So to touch first on the point that you mentioned, yes, there are two distinct functions. The function of ejaculation is uh, related to the sympathetic autonomic system. It is the, the impulse for it comes from somewhere along the spine. It's a very basic instinctual action. The orgasm comes from the brain, from the accumbus, and it has a very uh, particular, very different, is related to the parasympathetic, to this relax, uh, relaxing part of the body, different hormones, different everything. These two, along evolution, were associated. Yeah, there was a mutation of a man who associated these two, ejaculation and orgasm. And this guy would ejaculate more. Ejaculating more, had more offsprings, and eventually is the vast majority of guys that have that. Now, if our sole goal in life is to procreate, very good. Keep them associated and have hundreds and thousands of children. Fine. But if you have other goals in life than just procreation, this can be dissociated. And it takes some practice. Orgasm and ejaculation. Orgasm and ejaculation can be dissociated. Can be dissociated completely. And uh, yes, it takes some practice for guys. You learn, first of all, the first stage is the desert. You first, you learn how not to ejaculate and your uh, joy of sexuality for the, that part of practice, for the desert part that can be weeks, but some, for some guys even months is uh, without orgasm. You enjoy very much, a lot of empathy, you are very strong and very virile, you can make love for hours, but you don't enter the area, what we call in Tantra, the non-return point. You don't get to a degree of pleasure that would before provoke ejaculation. Once you've mastered this stage for a while, you... Uh, Basically, using very specific uh, meditation, and breathing techniques and yoga techniques, you learn to harness, like you said before, you learn to use the sexual energy and it spreads. So you would feel sexuality not just in your genitals, but throughout your body. And as the container of sexuality grows through the specific practices, you are able to have wonderful um, orgasms in time and they are how to say they are incomparable to the orgasms that you had before 
you can have an orgasm for three minutes, for five minutes, for seven minutes. And it's like it's never ending and it's um, it's like this infinity sign. It's, it's, it apparently diminishes and then it feeds itself again. It apparently diminishes and feeds itself again. And um, what is like there's this American expression, it's good for what held you. Yeah, it's, it just detensionizes the, the five minutes of orgasm no matter what was holding you before, you feel completely reborn. I know someone's listening to this right now yes. saying, come on, five minutes of orgasm? Yeah, five minutes of orgasm I can share from my experience. And yeah, once you get it as a guy, it's sometimes even easier than for women to have an orgasm. And yes, you can do it many, many times. But there is a desert before where... The desert is filled with uh, graves of guys that tried <laughs> and didn't succeed. Yeah, because it takes sometimes weeks, sometimes months, in which you have to invest, you have to do a very good daily practice. It's wonderful. I mean, you feel very energized already in the time of the desert, but you don't have an orgasm for a few months. And you have to pass through that. Most guys, some guys are extremely talented and boom, they're there. Or guys who are very, very in love with their girlfriend also sometimes they, they just enter immediately to orgasms. But for most guys, it takes that step. And if you are strong enough and man enough to follow the desert, you will find the oasis beyond the desert. And yes, it's absolutely amazing. Every, and every orgasm has its particular nuance and you learn in time to meditate in the states of orgasm and you can have fantastic spiritual states that even 20 years of meditation would not, would not get you there. Yes. Yeah, you said something to that effect in, in a lecture and it kind of caught me off guard. You said something to the effect, and forgive me if I'm misquoting you, that you can achieve somewhat higher states in tantric sexuality than you can through meditation. Yes. And the meditator in me was like, whoa, 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 easy. Yes. But would you mind sort of unpacking that a bit? Yes, yes. So especially for women, yeah, especially also for men, but for women it's much more accessible. If a woman has a man that loves her and they have a lot of mutual love and he's very continent, continent in the sense that he, can, he doesn't ejaculate and he can make love for a long time, and she has, they make love for two, three hours, and she has a series of orgasms. And, and like I, I emphasize again, and they are very in love. Yeah, it doesn't really work without the ingredient of love. Then she will start to have tremendous spiritual experiences. I've met personally women that entered states of cosmic consciousness, had astral projection, supramental states, met all sorts of divine beings, in, uh, in the lovemaking, I was present in the bedroom <laughs> for some of these experiences. It's, it's absolutely um, mind-blowing. The energy gets so divine. Yeah, if you remember from what we spoke about polarity, the energy gets so high that the consciousness is attracted to it. And then the state of consciousness leaps or gradually ascends into places that never never been before and it's not just uh, the idea is not just okay now we're tripping with spiritual experiences these experiences they stand as landmarks it's like you see the world from the top of the mountain and you can 
It will influence the rest of your life if you digest it correctly, if you understand and you have some initiations of what actually happened there. It, will, it can change one or two or five such experiences, can literally change your life and you will take a direction that's much more aligned with who you are and so forth. Yes, and, and that's what it's about. It's, how to say, um, meditation practice is safer. It's clear cut, but it's, it's wonderful. I meditate two hours every day since I don't know when. It's wonderful and it needs to be combined with Tantra. But the Tantric path, because it involves such a fiery energy when it comes to sexuality, can go even faster, but much less safe. There's many things that can go wrong in, uh, in the Tantric, and it's very, very subtle. You lose the love. Very dangerous. You have to stop. Could you yeah. talk a bit more about that when things going wrong? Because that's another question I want to ask you. Some of the... I don't know if we can call them dangers of Tantra, but yes. something like that. Yes, yes. Tantra is not... Uh, meditation is quite safe. Mm. Tantra is not so safe. And that's one of the reasons why Tantra remains so hidden. Mm. Because it cannot... Uh, you cannot read two books about Tantra for most people and then start practicing and get to the very, very high tops of Tantra. You can get somewhere. But from a certain point, the nuances are so refined and it's, it's, Tantra is called uh, walking on the blade of the knife. It's a very short path, but very dangerous. All these nuances, many things can go wrong. Once you attain through Tantra a lot of power, with power comes responsibility. You don't take that responsibility, you misuse the power to, I don't know what, sleep around or get rich or... Uh, hurt other people or deal with some, I don't know what, appreciation issues that you have in a very silly way, then uh, that huge energy will explode in your face. Yeah? Because in most traditions you grow in consciousness and then in, in energy. In Tantra you grow in consciousness, you grow in energy. You grow in consciousness, you grow in energy. And the um, rights and wrongs in Tantra, even they are very firm, and very clear, they are principles. They are not dogmas. Yes, you can have, for example, multiple partners if you want in Tantra. But you need to love. But how to check if you love? You can make things much worse if you have polyamory and there's no love anywhere. Or in one relationship. You have four relationships, one you don't love. Disaster. Yeah? So the, the game in Tantra is always at the level of intention. You can do all sorts of things which will appear almost crazy for ordinary people if it comes from the right intention. Yes, the great uh, Tantric master Ramakrishna, he saw the goddess Kali in a cat and he would feed the cat as if it was with the offerings. People bring offerings to the goddess. He was the main priest. And he would feed the cat. They wanted to kill him. But he saw Kali in the cat. So it was all right. It's a terrible sin, apparently, but not in his case because he actually saw it. So it's very, very refined. And then if a, if, if a person who doesn't have the inner state would take the offerings of Kali and feed it to another cat or to the same cat, but not with the right intention. Terrible sin. Yeah? So this is how it is. Um, 
you know, it would be very easy for Tantra to become dogmatic, to create a tantric society with very strict rules and so forth. But it would kill the message. It would dry out the essence of Tantra. So Tantra stayed with all the do's and don'ts at the level of principle, at the level of you can do this and that if you have the attitude. How do we know if you have the attitude? You know if you have the attitude. And because of that, it's very, very um, dangerous. Yeah? If you are on the path of abstinence, you kiss the woman, clear, you're off the path. If you're on the path of Tantra, is is only if inside your attitude has become selfish, then you're out. But who can see that? Who can prove that? Have it, my friends. I hope you enjoyed part one of this conversation with my friend and teacher Uriel Arif. If you'd like to learn more about Uriel and his school here in Chiang Mai, Mahasiddhi Yoga, you can go to tantrayogathailand.com. That's tantrayogathailand.com for information about Uriel and his wonderful partner slash co-teacher Blandine and the wonderful school they run here in Chiang Mai. Also remember that if you enjoyed this conversation and your interest was piqued and you'd like to learn more about Tantra, please uh, stay tuned. Next week, I'll be sharing part two of this conversation in which we explore many of the same themes, but we also go a little deeper. We, I think we each open up a little bit more and uh, I, really, uh, I really enjoyed part two. So I, I think you're going to want to stick around and hear that next Tuesday. It'll come out on this podcast. Before I let you go, a final reminder that Ratings and reviews are so important for a podcast success. So if you're enjoying Humans in Love and you'd like me to keep doing this, let me know, let the Apple gods know, let the podcast community know. Please leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or your podcast app of choice. Before I let you go, I'll remind you that life is short, my friends, far too short to not learn about Tantra. (laughs) In my less than humble opinion. Talk to you next Tuesday. Thank you.